Hello, dear humans. Welcome to another episode of Emerge. On this episode, we begin the three-episode arc with Bonita Roy on the topic of source code analysis applied to the concepts of power, trust, and collective action. And so this analysis, this practice, this form of relating to conceptuality carries with it a deep commitment to unpack hidden assumptions around concepts that dominate our life and our language. And this is all for the sake of identifying a way of conceiving of things like power that we can then build a new and more useful conversation around. And I got to say, I found this conversation and the other two that we recorded to be deeply useful to me in my own life. And I think it's the case, and once you hear the conversation and hopefully start playing with it in your own life, this different idea of power, you start to see the way in which these concepts and our confusion about them influence the ways that we talk to each other and think about politics and make decisions, um, and that indeed confusion around these ideas has uh you know kind of emerges as confusion in political movements in relationships to collectives of all kinds and so uh i just can't say enough how useful this uh method is and uh, I look forward to continuing to explore it. I look forward to sharing the other two conversations in the series. And please let me know, uh, let us know if uh, this is useful to you, if you'd like to see more of this kind of uh, approach. You know, I think we also demonstrated this kind of approach to a certain degree in the conversation with Bonita and Jordan Greenhall and I. So you can also look to that to get another sense of the flavor for this method of discourse that Bonita Roy calls source code analysis. Okay, so with that as the introduction, please enjoy this episode of Emerge. Oh, uh, but before we get started, I'd like to invite you into a relationship of support with this project. Uh, this episode arc with Bonita Roy will be the kind of finale, the grand finale of season two of Emerge. And um, I'm really excited and really uh, uh, glad with how this project is going. And I'd like to spend more time I'd like to give it more care. I'd like to kind of nurture the soil and the network that's been growing around this project. Um, I think that there's a lot of fertility here. I think actually the conversations that I'm having and the people that are being drawn to this project are, I mean, for me at least, it's it's extremely energizing and, and beautiful and exciting and um, promising and hopeful, actually. Um, and so. You know, if you have that sense of the, this being exciting and hopeful and promising and 
and interesting. Um, I, I encourage you to consider uh, supporting the show financially. And you can do that if you check the show notes uh, or if you go to anchor.fm slash emerge. Um, you know, I think Sam Harris has a really good explainer on why it's important that audience that, that shows become supported by audience members instead of by advertising or something else. And I really agree with that. I would, I would really love to live in a world where at least a part of my income comes from this project such that I can really dedicate myself in a way that's, you know, uncensored, uncontrolled, uh, uh, and, and, and feels kind of honoring of the importance and significance of this subject matter. And so if you feel inspired, if you feel moved, please consider giving a little bit to the show. And um, I really appreciate those of you who have already given. Um, and I want to, uh, uh, in particular, appreciate uh, Anthony Morley for uh, choosing to become a supporter of the show since, since the last episode was shared. And, and um, yeah, thank you, everybody who has given a little bit. It, it, um, it, it, it really makes a difference uh, to me, and, and, and I appreciate it deeply. Thank you. You know, as we discussed, I kind of open it up and just say, like, you know, uh, after our last conversation, number one, a lot of people reached out to me and told me that, you know, they listened to our conversation twice. They took notes on it, that that it really, um, I think, was clarifying for them in how they approach and think about just the world at this crazy time. And so um, this now conversation that we're in at this moment sort of emerged out of Bonita and I continuing to be in touch and just sort of like, you know, syncing up and vibing on the same kind of riding on the same rainbow, maybe about how we might work with complex systems. Yes, but also have conversations about complexity that are actually useful. And as Bonita, as you say in the video you sent me, you know, that avoid certain traps that our culture seems to be disposed to fall into these days. Uh, traps like postmodern structuralism, reductive empiricism, or as we discussed a lot in the last show, uh, vertical moves into meta theory. And if you spend enough time in any of these circles, you will start to see that these are indeed traps. And so the question then becomes like, how do we have, how do we use our minds to approach these problems in a way that actually leads us somewhere <laughs> at, 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 useful or at least not like obviously harmful to the process of trying to create a more beautiful future. And so um, with that as kind of the setup, uh, Bonita, welcome. Thank you so much for coming back on Emerge. Yeah. Um, so what stood out for me in that intro was useful. Um, mm. We're not necessarily trying to create a um, valid theories. That would be in the direction toward those moves, right? Mm. But so then what do we mean by useful? And that actually touched on 
how I would like to start the conversation. And I had a little example in my mind, so I'll just frame that. So useful means after we finish our discussion today, what kind of effect would we like that to have on the audience? What kind of impact could these types of approaches have? And so as an example, um, I don't know if you've ever read David Graeber's book, uh, Debt, 5,000 Years. Um, But in that book, he shows that our current monetary system, whenever you print money, it's actually debt, right? Because whenever the central bank prints a dollar, it's owed back to the central bank with interest. Mm -hmm. So this is one of these ways of really unpacking what money is. So once you know that, there are certain ramifications of truly understanding that. So, for example, if you have a growing economy and you're printing more money, you're actually the economy is going into exponential debt. If the economy is growing exponentially, there's no way out of that fundamental way that money operates or functions in a state backed uh, currency that is run by central banks and not by the nation states. So yes. what do you do then with that? Once you understand that, and hopefully we'll get to a similar understanding of power, it should have results. And so with money, you can do one or two things. Once you know that there are unavoidable uh, properties, you could either... Um, choose not to, you know, first of all, you don't uh, make complex arguments about why why there's a trillion dollar debt and what you should mm-hmm. do with your money that, that are just a distraction from the truth, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it doesn't. But the other thing is, is you can say, given that is the constant reality, how do we hack that? So that's a disruptive way to look at it. Given that money is always debt, how do we hack that as a constant reality? So that's what I think um, would be kind of describe what is useful in this approach of um, understanding some of these things in this kind of way that we'll get to. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, it reminds me of this this quote I heard recently that there's nothing more practical than a good theory, right? Which uh, uh, I think, if anything, should be evident of how many bad theories there are in the world because there's so much that you can learn that isn't actually useful when it comes to solving the real problems of our era. And so um, hopefully here, we'll kind of both set up a, a frame of analysis that you call source code analysis that is generally useful for talking about complex issues. And then we'll do the specific source code analysis in this episode of the, uh, what what would you call it? Like the kind of uh, idea of power? Yeah, the idea of power broadly defined and uh, yeah. Great. Great. So, so let's, let's start by just saying like, well, what, what is a source code analysis? Oh uh, yeah, so um, you know it's kind of a fancy name, and the th- and the way I sent it to you in that interview is very formulaic. It obvi- it doesn't actually come out of a process that that's that formulaic, but it comes out of 
a commitment to unpack hidden assumptions in the discourse around anything. So if you start, for example, with a mess, let's say, you know, we can imagine the mess of Jordan Peterson talking to uh, Ben Shapiro and Ezra Klein on identity Mm -hmm. politics. And, you know, we say, oh, my God, this is a mess. Um, How can we disentangle some of the um, semiotics or some of the signifiers that are going on in here. And, and so in this case, I think, you know, we're talking, we, we want to disentangle what people, how they're relating to the word power. And mm. so there's power in the patriarchy, there's power in identity politics, there's power in, 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 in all this conversation. And perhaps we could say, um, um, I mean, there's other things in, in that, but um, I think that power is a, is a pretty much a, a, a big one, like the dominance hierarchy and um, who has power and in uh, Black Lives Matter. These whole conversations, I think, in general are around power. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so source code analysis is a way to um, to um, identify um, it has certain steps. So we, what we want to get to is identify a unformulated or unelaborated um, definition of power, um, what I call a conceptual prime, that then we can build a new conversation around that already doesn't have triggers and biases and sliding context. So um, that's what, we're, what, what we would try to do. Cool. And so can you maybe just say a little bit about that last piece? And I think it has to do with the traps because I think, you know, so we identified some traps. You also identified um, something in your video called the naturalistic fallacy, which I Mm -hmm. think just kind of understanding how it is that source code analysis um, might help us avoid the naturalistic fallacy as well as other common traps, uh, just to give us some context before we start unpacking it in the context of power. Right. So um, the natu- So there's a lot of things in source code analysis that we can say it's not this, it's not, po- it's not postmodern structuralism. And, it, and, and we also have to avoid certain moves that um, we're tempted to do in doing this kind of analysis. And one is, what is a naturalistic fallacy? So um, the naturalistic fallacy says that you can't go into nature and see what nature is doing and then say, well, then this th- the definition of power is what we see in nature because mm. you're actually, what you see in nature is already uh, filtered or shaped by a theory of what's going on. And so, for example, um, for years... Uh, they had a theory of herd dynamics in horses. And then mm. they did a study, I think it went over 40 years of wild horses in France. And they showed with your eyes wide open, it wasn't a stallion driven dominance hierarchy. There's many, many more complex power mm. negotiations going on. And some of them are really subtle. And there's always exceptions that prove the rules and mm. this rich tapestry of embodied beings and how they related with each other in, in, 
some of those and, and organize the way they organized was fluid. So under certain conditions, it looked more like a patriarchy and the certain conditions, it looked more like a matriarchy under certain conditions. It looked more like generation X coming up, you know, and that. So, but for years they just looked and said, well, patriarchy and the dominance hierarchy is even expressed in herds and in, in nature. You see, so mm. we have to be very careful right. that we don't try to prove that the dominance hierarchy is functionally essential to all, all you know, human animals because the lobster presents his claw in a certain ritualistic communication. <laughs> you know, this is called yeah. the naturalistic fallacy. Yeah, interesting. And so it, it functionally seems similar to a form of reductionism, except it's uh, almost like a twice confused reductionism because first we reduce our power structures to like hierarchy and then we look at like say lobsters and say oh there's an a mirror there and so therefore what we're doing is natural but really we're just getting lost it seems in a kind of uh, yeah like a trap or something exactly and so we can make this uh, pretty clear right now with this, the next move, and that is um, to understand that when we look at, I don't want to talk about lobsters because I don't know that much about lobsters, but I've worked with horses for a long time. When we look at nature, we are seeing patterns mm -hmm. and we are seeing certain patterns and not others. And we are trying to explain those patterns. And so what we really want to do in this source quote analysis is not argue about the patterns, if the patterns are real or not, or are there other patterns, but mm. what are the protocols and the context and the contingencies that create the patterns we see, mm. Mm -hmm. right? So, um, um, and, and obviously, so, so that, that's another thing. We want to make sure that we are not, um, if, if, if I'm saying, oh, I see a patriarchy in this herd and the other, another person saying, I see a matriarchy and this, then we're, we're arguing at the level of patterns. Mm. So if we're both being honest, those pat, you know, unless, you know, if we're both being honest and we're generous and we, the other person saying, no, 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 this is how I relate to mm. it. Then there must be protocols that source both those patterns. And mm. that's what we're looking for, protocols and mm. contingencies. We want to understand it at that level. Right on. Yeah. And so, again, circling back, that would make a conversation actually useful because then we'd actually be in traction with the, the protocols, as you call them, that give rise to these emergent patterns that often we don't like, like, for instance, patriarchy, which is a current kind of whipping boy of a big segment of our culture. Correct. Great. Okay. So I feel like that's pretty well understood as a context. And just to, again, to step, take a step back and just say uh, the, the, the kind of reason we're now going to be going into power in particular is so that we can kind of demonstrate what it might be like to talk about complex and important issues uh, in a way that might actually make a difference, right? So, um, so with that as the kind of context, uh, what what is what is power? So, I'm not saying this is the only 
um, conceptual prime you can make out of power or native definition. Yes. I have been using it and it seems to be very useful. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, if it's useful across many broad categories and it kind of clears the field, then maybe it's a powerful conceptual prime. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I know I was always laughing in that video I sent you because I kept on having to use the word, oh, and it's powerful. And it kind of rec- was recursive there. So uh, just just going right at it, the, my definition of my conceptual prime of power is that it's who gets to move who. And um, this is this is uh, foundational to whether we're talking about uh, any you know non-living things or other living beings or uh, complex systems. Like if I say a hurricane is powerful, it gets to move my whole house or it gets to move <laughs> me underground. So we're really trying to um, look at power as that, who gets to move who. Now, in these larger discourses, in these social discourses, we are sometimes uh, talking about, um, you know, physical force, you know, like if I'm in a boxing ring, the the powers who gets to, or a wrestling match, move who. Um, And certainly I want to acknowledge that in some cases, the, this kind of discourse devolves down to a very raw definition of who gets to move who, which we call violence or force. But in general, in these more complex, we're talking about who gets to move who through social, emotional, biopsychological protocols. Mm. And, And this, once we look at this very carefully, then we see that we are not very skillful at preserving our own power or Mm. working with power dynamics. Mm. And I give you, so who gets to move who? I'll just give you one example. Um, If I'm a young person in college and I go to a party and this great looking guy kind of bumps into me or something. And I turn around and my, my body is moved, you know, I'm just Mm -hmm. kind of out of control and I'm getting a crush and I'm blabbering like an idiot and stuff. I will feel that that person has power over me because just by being that person, just by the way it's set up, my needs and wants, whatever happening, they are moving me. Mm. They are moving me. So a parent has the same kind of power over a child, even as a child becomes an adult, right? Who gets to move who? Put, put, put someone off balance, move them off balance. And if I'm uh, a kind of a radical feminist, I might actually see this innocent person is, was just standing there. I might actually perceive that as being some kind of microaggression or something because I truly feel mm. a power asymmetry because I'm being moved and the other person is not. Mm. So this is how it works. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so in the case where they, so they're right. Like that, that person is exerting power over them, whether or not intention really arises anywhere in either party's experience. Correct. The felt sense of power asymmetry is there. Right. That's the phenomenon. That's the felt. 
that's that's real but yeah. <laughs> right well and that just gets to like i i you know have traumatic memories of like occupy wall street where people would try to kind of uh uh pretend as if there was intention present when there wasn't and how quickly that would devolve the conversations whereas if i can imagine having a conversation where if people were taking responsibility for their own subjectivity and saying something like, well, I noticed that when you entered the room, I suddenly felt scared or so, or I don't know exactly how it would play out, but it seems to uh, uh, suck some of the propensity for trigger and uh, uh, meaningless conversation out of the equation. Yes. A lot of the conversation we're going to have here is that in the postmodern conversation, we, okay, how do I, how do I increase my power, keep my balance? Well, the mm. postmodern, the move is, you know, um, I, I need to overpower you. I need more skills so that um, campus police keeps people like you away from me or something like that. So that's to increase uh, the external conditioners, but what is seldom the case is people realize what's happening in me that is disempowering me. Why, why am I always off balance? What is my need here? What is my want? What is my, my weakness in this situation? Mm. So, it, you know, I learned this from training horses and I trained stallions and, and, you know, the stallions just, if, if you're looking at the stallion and you're you're a little skillless or you're you're new at this, you definitely feel overpowered, right? Physically overpowered. Mm. And then if if you actually have a little dog and the dog has also got a lot of energy and running around and doing the exact same thing the horse is. You think it's cute. <laughs> and the temptation with the stallion is to think he's mean or aggressive mm. or violent. And in this case, mm. it's just because size matters. So you have to, you have, you, you know, so this is the way we can talk about this, that, that, you know, we want to be very, very clear about how, why the power asymmetry is being felt in the way it is, and where are we going to move when we are being moved? Hmm. Yeah, and so you have this really nice equation um, that's coming more clear to me why this is so important, but of of skills and resources divided by needs and wants, which I, as a as a you know person who has spent some time in a monastery, I really appreciate it because what what becomes clear is that. Uh, you become very powerful if you if you need or want nothing. Exactly. So this is, I mean, maybe it'll be intuitive to the audiences. I could talk about this all day, but if you understand it, you get a very strong intuitive hit. And yeah. great literature is filled with this. The woman that wants the man and the man doesn't care that her want or vice versa just fuels that power over them. And um, you can go a long way with this. It's very, very important in business. I used to tell the salespeople who were designing huge landscape construction projects for the rich and famous, they'd come in, you know, mm. they would have an opportunity to build Shangri-La and 75 acres of beautiful land. And I'd say, you're in trouble. You want this more than your client does. 
So you have no mm. negotiating power. Um, this is, you know, when someone like me with this definition of power sees uh, people demonstrating on Wall Street for the government to give them things, it's just it's just ludicrous. I want mm. you to give me something. You know, it's just it's it's in in the hopes of getting a chunk of power, they just disempower themselves over and over and over again. And mm. um, I, yeah, so I, I yeah. I mean, Jordan Peterson, I just say Jordan Peterson has the same problem. I mm. mean, he just, he has an interesting relationship with what he calls crazy women. I just don't know how to convince them of anything. Mm. And he disempowers himself in the fact that he needs so much to convince crazy people of his position. <laughs> it doesn't mm. really make any sense mm. when you look at it that way. Mm. Right, right. Well, can, maybe, so this is still a little unclear to me, and maybe we can unpack this. It'll be useful to unpack this. But um, looking at a phenomenon like Occupy Wall Street, um, you said that, you know, having this equation of skills and resources over needs and want, and the idea of power is who gets to move who, um, kind of reveals this underlying disempowerment of the, that movement or that phenomenon. And I, I guess you, can you explain that in a different way? Cause it's still not completely clear why, how this equation affords that insight. Okay. So <clears throat> whenever I mean, we're going to talk about a dyad, just two people, because it's easier to talk about, but it's never about just two people, but or two beings or, you know, works with people and animals. Mm -hmm. When they meet, each one has certain skills and resources and needs and wants. So I say their absolute power is skills and resources divided by their needs and wants. And so because those aren't ever exactly the same. When people meet over a theme or um, um, any kind of collective action, there's a power asymmetry. So let's say I want to uh, move the couch, and but my skills are such I can't move it by myself. But my needs are over the top because my mother's coming over and she always yells at me. And then my husband, you know, he has the skills to move the couch, but he doesn't have a lot of uh, needs and wants. In fact, they may be negative needs and wants. And so this is already a negotiation mm. where people hold um, different kinds of powers. But then, you know, I could say, well, he needs and wants me to be happy so I can play a certain role that will tug on his psychological strings. And so this is this is what's called complex processes of human relating. They're complex negotiations across mm. asymmetric power dynamics that create the patterns in organizations, in families, in society that we see. And the more mindful we can be, what do I bring to this interaction? What are my needs and wants? What are my skills and resources? And there's a little more to that, but this... This asymmetry is always in constant, very subtle negotiation. Mm, and yeah. then, um, yeah, and, and so let's just stop there. There'll, there's another, there's a part two to that, but maybe we can we can stop there for right now. Yeah, well, just um, a couple things come to mind. Uh, one is, is it now is clear to me, you know, how 
there was a way in which at least a big part of Occupy, for example, were coming with uh, a lot of needs and a lot of wants and very few skills and resources. Um, and, and I think one of the effects of that, though, was actually that that uh, imbalance was felt. And for me and for many other people who were there, it became a tremendous learning experience because mm-hmm. there was a lot of skills and resources kind of, it was seen that that was needed, you know, given the level of uh, needs for a more beautiful future. And so that's one piece. And the other piece is just to sort of acknowledge, because I've gotten this feedback, I think about a couple of episodes, but um, these kinds of analytical lenses um, are very beautiful and powerful, um, but obviously you should be able to put them down. Like we're not talking about uh, always looking at your relationship with your significant other as if it is, you know, uh, in terms of these power equations, uh, that would be uh, very sad and <laughs> very, uh, in, you know, yes, inhuman. Yes. And so just to say that and make that clear before we roll on uh, to the next part. Yeah, the, the, this time out is to kind of reboot the system so you can have better discussions, which operate like just human, in, intimate human discussions. The, you know, the analysis is to, to deconstruct the habits of the old way of talking mm. and to be more sensitive to, you know, now that we've, op- where can I, where can I start? Sometimes we don't even know how to start after we've we've seen the problems. Mm. Um, yeah, the idea the idea is is not to and none of this is because it lives truly in the space of real complexity. None of this mm. is gameable because mm. there's no actual cause and effect. It's holistically contingent. Mm. So um, that's another. Um, thing to um, be aware of. It's more like mindfulness training to be mm. aware that these subtle things are going on. Um, yeah, and 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 you know to really to to do be mindful about what your your needs and wants are and how that is presenting and unfolding in your reality by holding on to those. Yeah, totally. And that, that is just so beautiful. I mean, it reminds me of like in meditation, I remember having sitting retreat and the kind of big insight was, you know, don't try to change reality, but instead try to see reality so clearly that it changes itself. And there's a kind of similar movement that I hear you uh, speaking about that can maybe happen in the, in the social space and the power relations space where it's less about a specific move and more about unlocking new ways of being and seeing through our awareness or through our paying attention to certain dynamics? Correct. It's like that, how I started. It's like, finally you see, boom, I see that money is debt. So everything that I tried to do was in the wrong direction. Now coming up with how to move off of that direction is interesting, creative work. Hmm. But you need to see that you've been, you know, it's kind of like, oh, I know it. I had a metaphor. I woke up with this metaphor. It's like, it's like the hamster on the wheel trying to get somewhere. Mm. And then one day, boom, he sees, he sees it's a wheel. Mm. Well, that's just the starting point, right? Yeah. And it's kind of like that. You see that, 
oh, power works this way. No matter how much I do in that old way, I'm not moving toward the more beautiful world or toward the solution of something I am interested in or, or something. And, you know, you may, you may discover that you have needs and wants that are not helpful, but you may also discover that in there is the core need or the core want. Mm. And, and, and then you can examine that very, you know, more closely, more mindfully. Mm. Um, And, 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 and that, that will bring us to uh, part two um, but but let's just keep going here. Right. So where where should we go next in terms of understanding and and kind of making use of this uh, power equation or so uh, whatever? What, what, so there's the power equation and then there's the protocols. Um, and the is the power. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So let let's back up. Okay. Great. Great. <laughs> I'm remembering. My, yeah. So okay. So. So we just did a little bit of source code, anal- source code analysis, kind of give a feeling of um, what what an end product might look like. Um, one of the things that we need to understand in this kind of work is that, um, so basically there's power that we talked about. The, we talked about the felt sense of power is who is the 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 sense that I'm being moved either physically or bio psycho sociological. Um, then, then the other thing we're going to back up to a larger level. And, and we talked about that power is patterns we see that emerge from protocols. And I call that the power matrix, mm. just to make sure that we're talking about the patterns we see and not the lived experience, which is this felt sense. Mm. Um, now, what's important to understand is that, remember last time we were talking about a lot of discourses on aboutism? Yes. Aboutism is usually discourse around the patterns we see that emerge at a certain level. The, mm. the, pa- com- the, the complexity of the interactions create patterns. Mm. And what's important is that you to understand would look to have a, a, a lens from complexities, you cannot operate on the system at the level of emergence, mm. right? So I can't operate on the because the, the at the level of a, the emergent pattern, that is just the pattern. Mm. You have to operate on the protocols that are, producing those patterns. So um, it's a little stickier than that because if you do talk about the emergent patterns, that changes the protocols beneath them. But Mm. in general, you have a whole lot more impact if you try to operate at the protocols from which those patterns emerge. And and, uh, just to spend maybe a little bit of time here because I think this is such a vital clarification um, this is similar to what we were talking about earlier, where with Daniel Schmachtenberger's idea of the generator function, and it's is that, the, yes. and maybe you can kind of just par- parallax those or kind of compare those just to give us more clarity about why this is so significant. Yeah, so it's the same move. Uh, he he uh, he's 
Schmattenberg is very good at talking about these very large patterns of resource depletion and how the economy works toward uh, negative impact on the environment. And he lays it all out, and then you'll hear him say something and to look at the generator function that has created this system, right? So um, he uses that term, and I can't remember any specifics. I've watched a lot of his stuff, but he's looking for the generator function and we want to change the generator function. Sometimes it just requires a tweak, right? I mean, but finding the tweak is, is not an easy task. Um, So that's another, I say protocol generator function um, is similar. Perhaps he, he'll, listen to this and, and make it an important Great, distinction. Great, thank you. And so, and so just to have that in mind, you know, you can't act on the level of, say, climate change itself. That Climate change doesn't exist <laughs> except uh, as this emergent property of the, you know, the running of perhaps multiple generator functions um, or certainly uh, lots of different protocols, right? So that's how we might understand the significance of what you have kind of laid out around emergence in this in this case yeah yeah perfect example um okay so so we've established that we're not talking about for instance patriarchy we're talking about um which which you would call the the power a power matrix was that how you might refer to to patriarchy is yes matrix okay yes um or a pattern a pattern in the matrix okay a pattern in the matrix and then and so now i guess we're going to kind of zoom back or where do you want to go next? Where, where would be the right place to go next? I'm, I'm not sure this bridge is well, but I'll throw it out there and then maybe we can yeah. help um, if it doesn't make sense. So one of the things I want to go back to two people come together and, you know, my story about the couch and there's a negotiation going on because there's a power asymmetry. And the question is, um, um, So two things can happen. A certain attitude will seek to increase that asymmetry. Mm. And a certain attitude is interested in that, is curious about what happens if that asymmetry is uh, decreased. Mm. And I'm not talking about disempowering people like you have to be careful because if i just give in and do everything if i just capitulate and solve all your needs and wants then the gradient is not necessarily going to decrease it might actually Mm. flip so we can ask ourselves as a see it's a different question than saying equality or egalitarianism or or equality of opportunity so it's a different question. It's an, a more interesting question because it doesn't say necessarily say one is better than the other. It says there's two different outcomes. You get two different outcomes. Mm. So, for example, and I'll give an easy example. Um, in, in business, a company, you, conventional companies, want to establish a strong asymmetry between themselves and their and their mm. customers over because then the customer pays more and they keep needing to buy 
new things. Now, recently in the disruptive economy, something interesting happens. The, the organization, the product or service doesn't cater to the customer's needs. It displaces mm. it. It either makes it go away or it gives the customer their own skills and resources. This is a disruptive economy. That this is happening in this day and age is fascinating mm. because it's a different kind of move. It doesn't disempower the company and it doesn't disempower the the customer. And it reminds me of Jordan Greenhall's anti-rivalrous right. behavior. The more you do this, the better it is for both both sides of the equation. It brings to mind the omni-win idea of Daniel Schmachtenberger as well. So again, just pointing out these these threads exactly. and parallel processes, but, but, but please continue. Yeah, no, pointing out the threads and parallel processes is really important because it gives, when you look around and you see other people um, who kind of know each other because we watch things, but we come from completely different uh, backgrounds and participate in the world in completely different ways, but you're getting to the same kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It gives you confidence that you're actually talking about reality. Yeah. You're not talking about your perception of realities and something is coming forward. Mm -hmm. But I actually believe there's th this, this, um, so, so there's something interested in this notion of the way we're learning how to negotiate asymmetries in a different direction, because um, if you believe in, um, uh, what is this book, The Zero Marginal Cost Society, Jeremy Rifkin sees that there's something breaking out. And of course, conventional organizations know that commodities go to zero and the cost of production goes to zero. There's actually something like this happening in economies today, this, 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 um, movement toward, um, more symmetry between in in complex processes of human relating called economies. Mm. Um, so that that's interesting. Something in that conversation is also in this conversation. Mm. Okay. Well, um, so I, I'm like right on the edge of my uh, kind of complexity and and understanding. And I also want to notice that a lot of the way that this uh, form of analysis seems to be impacting me is, is, is on in like a kind of embodied level. Like it seems like things all of a sudden become clear and then it just sort of recedes into the background. So there, it does seem to produce insights, at least in me, which is really fascinating that we could come up with a kind of linguistic strategy that could reliably produce insights about complex phenomena is like really captivating. Um, and yeah. yeah, so this work is not for the faint of heart. And because what happens, I mean, I'm glad you said that. But what happens with most people is they'll get the insight and then the need to argue the position that they're kind of habituated with becomes they're addicted to it. They're, but they'll say like, but there's a but he has more money than me. Oh, but. Mm. 1% of the people own all the money, but you see, so you get, you get, it's really requires discipline because you get triggered into wanting to enter the old narrative, mm -hmm. but it takes a lot of time to let the insight open space 
for a new mm. vision. And when you're talking about the kind of radical paradigm shift we need, those are the kinds of disciplines we need to yes. practice. But, but, but you will feel the need, you know, people who are in the old discourse, uh, to re-enter that. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, 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 it's very mm-hmm. difficult. Which, which is a form of power. Like we could actually leverage this model on that very movement, I imagine. Okay, perfect insight, which shows you that the media and the constant cycle of all this discourse in the media depletes your power. Mm. It has power over you. You can't even create space to look at optional ways of looking at things. You're actually hyper-reactive. You know, this is disempowering. Mm. Hmm. So, uh, this is maybe a bit of a question on the left field, but I think, uh, I want to see what happens if we try to go in this direction, which is given this sort of understanding of power. And we talked a little bit about Occupy Wall Street. Um, how would you using this theory or this kind of analysis, imagine a movement to actually gather power, the power necessary to move the world in a more beautiful direction. You know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm noticing that um, what we've been talking about um, has been also articulated in some ways by uh, Jordan Greenhall and the notion of mm-hmm. sovereignty. And so, he, you know, so this notion of we want to move into a future that um we aspire to and um this notion but and, and and so it requires something of us and um it requires us to be make choices and to demonstrate behaviors that we are unfamiliar with and that will feel risky. I mean, I'll go there. People never like it when I go there. So I'll just go there. So I had a, you know, I was having one of these conversations with a group of people and the topic was healthcare and how awful uh, the U.S. does healthcare and actually how awful Western science does healthcare, and it was going on and on and on. And then I said, "Well, how many people have health insurance?" And they all raised mm. their hands. So I said, "Perhaps we have the health insurance and healthcare system we have because we pay for it and we continue to utilize it." So at a certain point, it does. If you're very um, mm. committed to a more beautiful world. You make personal choices that you find are are um, you. They will come with the taste of risk. Mm. However, if you start doing some of that, you realize how snookered you've been all along. Like I, I don't have health insurance. I work with horses. I got my arm blown out by a young horse that was just kicking up in the pasture and I wasn't paying attention at 102 stitches and x-rays emergency room and it costs like $1,900 mm. and it's just healthcare is such a ripoff mm. 
And so, so there's a lot of space to maneuver in the world in this new paradigm, but we don't seem to be able to make the choices and, 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 and perform the behaviors in that direction. And if we can't do that, then it's, you know, it's not going to happen. Your parents, no one's going to do that for us. Right, right, right. But, but, and, and, but the, the, the complication or the, the part I'm curious about is like, I know people and I have done such risky behavior, you know, to, to kind of the kind you talk about, but then it often is just one person or a couple of people or whatever. How do we, again, kind of build momentum of the collective towards a more sane direction? Well, you know, laying aside a beautiful future, let's just aim for a sane present and near future for a little bit. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a big question. I think that <clears throat> I don't think we'll ever know how to do that. Mm. I think that we may um, succeed in doing that, or we may not, or we may fail. But I don't think it'll come from at some point before it happens, we know how to do it. Mm. I know it's one of those real answers um, because it's, it's one of those, it's an emergent outcome right. of behaviors. So we may actually be doing that right now, or we may not. Um, and, but it's not like standing back and knowing about mm -hmm. it. It's about inspecting um, and, and get, you know, uh, trying to rid ourselves of malware or not profitable assumptions or just wrong assumptions mm. and trying to work in a, in a new kind of clarity mm. um, at all levels. Right. So that if you happen to be doing big systems thinking, then also at that level, someone's trying to work at a new clarity. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one one thing that comes into mind is is it's fascinating how, for instance, uh, the election of Donald Trump beforehand was inconceivable, and then afterwards was inevitable. Yeah, and I, I imagine that's typical. Yeah, I imagine the same kind of thing we might imagine for how we how we get to where we want to get. Uh, <laughs> I, I, or that's what it brought to mind uh, when you were speaking is this kind of, yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. I mean, you might look back and as we are saying already that the election of Donald Trump was a pivot point and it arose at the right time and you can create a theory around why the human race emerged as it did or, or didn't or whatever, but that would be re retrospective sense-making. And in my opinion, with the techniques like this kind of analysis of power, mm -hmm. if you pay attention to your lived experience very closely and you enact outcomes that are attending to those, then you will... Um, affect the future that you you hope for. 
it's 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 yeah It's the paradox of being what Jean-Luc Nancy called singular plural or singular plural beings. Mm. Um, yes. Yeah, or what they call in uh, the metamodern politics movement a dividual. They have that frame. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, some people are in roles that move mountains and and have a larger sort of obvious impact other people are in roles that have more discourse impact other people are on the front lines of very small initiatives packed with a lot of meaning all of these are part of the answer mm. Mm. beautiful i feel like that's Kind of, I mean, is there is there is there more that would be really useful to unpack now? I feel like we got to a really good place. Yeah, I think we got to a really good place, and um, maybe we'll get some feedback that will give us an idea of where to take this, where to go from yeah, here. Yeah, totally. I I have some ideas, and you mentioned um, if we want to keep doing these conversations that you had also done a similar kind of analysis with. Uh, was it trust and col what, what yeah. was the other one? And collective action. Perfect. And so with those three components, power, trust, and collective action, you can do a lot of work. Correct. So we look at power as an emergent phenomenon, try to find the generator function or the protocols. We look at trust, trust networks, emergent phenomenon. Again, people try to work on the level of the emergent phenomenon, but we need to if we, if we see these protocols, then we're sensitive and responsive to the little micro events mm. that will or will not build trust in society. Mm. Instead of talking about, you see, yeah. this that's maybe the point of this, mm. that we, we, we're trying to build people to be sensitive and, and responsible and responsive to the micro events that make a difference at the level of ah. the emergent pattern. And then, so trust is one power and collective action. What do, what do we do together? Yeah. What, what world are we going to build? Yeah. Beautiful. I love um, it. I love this inquiry. It's so, it's uh, so yeah. enlivening to me. Like it feels so healthy. Yeah. Good. So, um, I, and I don't think it's, I don't think it's the whole thing. I think it's a piece. Yeah. And so putting it out there and getting responses. Yeah. Is going to get us in, into much richer territory. Totally. And I, I feel like it's, so I really believe. Yeah, that. me too. And I think that, you know, I hope we get to live in a time where to say something like it's just a piece goes without saying. Um, and certainly like, yeah. I think the reason you could bring this piece is because you see that quite clearly. Um, and so yeah, this is a piece, but it's also a really fucking cool piece that I am excited to explore more and kind of discover how I can leverage it in my own context to, you know, move the dial even just a tiny bit. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you. Thank That's you, Bonita. This is great. Uh, really appreciate the conversation. Thank uh, you. Uh, we'll talk again soon. Uh, thanks for every all your work and uh, everything everything that um, you bring yeah. to the discussion.